Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of these forums and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Realizing that there are no easy or simple answers to major issues, we bring people to this city and to this podium whom we dare to hope can help us sort things out, who can help us at least or perhaps at best to ask the right questions. We come at the agenda not from any particular bias, except the bias that we do care about the larger issues, and that while it might be safer to steer clear, it's more faithful to wrestle. Our guest today is Douglas Edwards, a truly veteran newsman. He has anchored a daily network coast-to-coast -coast TV news report without interruption since August of 1948. He was the first anchor correspondent for CBS Evening News, preceding, mind you, Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather. Mr. Edwards has won the coveted George Foster Peabody Award for television news coverage and has received many other citations for excellence in his field. Currently, he anchors the mid-morning edition of Newsbreak, the CBS News headline service, and the Sunday morning series, For Our Times, which looks into various national and world issues from a religious and cultural perspective. Back in 1948, Mr. Edwards was involved with Edward R. Murrow and Quincy Howe in the first gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of the Democratic and Republican National Conventions. Yes, that was 1948. And now, here he is with us in the immediate aftermath of a national election, 1984. 1948, 1984. With us, with worlds of experience to his credit between times. I think that you will agree that we've chosen the right topic for him for today. A veteran correspondent looks at America, fall 1984. Welcome, Douglas Edwards. Thank you, Dr. Meisel, and thank you all so very much. It's a distinct pleasure and a privilege to be here with you in Minneapolis this noon. I know that I follow in very distinguished footsteps here. In fact, uh, when a friend of mine learned that I was to take part in this series, she sent me a tape, one of the speeches here, as if to say, see if you can top this. Her intentions were laudable, I'm sure, if uh, maybe a bit intimidating. And the result is that I feel a, a kind of go out there and get them spirit, and also a resolve never ever to tell her again where I'm speaking. 
I'm reminded in circumstances like this, uh, where I face an audience face to face without the trappings of the camera and the, well, there are microphones here and I welcome them. But at any rate, it is a large audience and a welcome one, and I speak to it face to face. I'm reminded of what happened to that great statesman and politician and great American, the late Adlai Stevenson. One day he made a talk to a woman's audience, and afterwards a little lady came up to him and said, Mr. Stevenson, I have to tell you that that was simply superfluous. And he thought a minute and came back with a line reading something like, well, perhaps I should consider having it published posthumously. <laughs> Without breaking, she said, that's a great idea, and I think the sooner the better. <laughs> now, now, I have no uh, illusions that my remarks to you today will be published posthumously or otherwise. But by the same token, I hope they won't be considered superfluous either because they reflect certain observations of mine about this country of ours, as Dr. Meisel has told you. In the week after the most important act of our political lives, the election of a president. These observations stem from a career in broadcasting, as you've also heard, that goes back a good long time, in my case, to a little radio station in a town called Troy, Alabama, to the time when I was a teenager. I was one of the first broadcasters to make the transition from radio to television without, not without some fear and uh, quivering. That was back in 1947, and I've been working both sides of the street ever since. My first television producer and director was a peripatetic young man by the name of Don Hewitt, who now is uh, a peripatetic older man who is now justly celebrated as the creator and executive producer of that rather successful 60 Minutes program on CBS. Don is innovative now, and he was back then in the early days. One morning he came in with an idea that perhaps I should learn Braille, learn Braille so we could st stick the news script uh, under the table with the chewing gum and everything else so I could keep my head up while I looked at the camera and delivered the news. The teleprompter had not come along yet. That's how long ago it was. If it had, Ronald Reagan might have been running for president even back then. Fortunately for me, other means of looking at the camera while I read my copy rescued me. I did not learn Braille, although Don Hewitt uh, once in a while says I still think it's a good idea. The point is, however, was that we were flying blind in so many ways in the very early days of television. We've come a long, long way since then. We're now in the era of cable vision, of satellite transmissions, of video discs and cassettes, of the mini camera, the mini series, and the maxi pack. We now have Magnum PI, where we once had Jack Armstrong, All-American Boy. We now have Dynasty, where we once had a simple radio program called One Man's Family. Some of you remember that. We now have, or did during the summer reruns, Bosom Buddies, buddies where we once had, well, I assure you, we did not have Bosom Buddies. <laughs> the early days of television and radio were simpler, more innocent, and in retrospect, certainly more amusing, too. I remember the time when we had invited a maker of Bach beer to come along in the springtime and tell us how it was done, and Don Hewitt suggested that he bring along a mascot, which he did, the biggest billy goat I have ever seen, who proceeded at two minutes to airtime to eat off the edge of the desk 
the news script I was about to deliver coast to coast. We banned animals after that. And the time at a national political convention, a Republican one, I was ticking off the names of uh, former Republican keynote speakers and looking for a picture of former Governor Dwight Green of Illinois to pop up on the screen in his proper place, to, uh, when to my horror there appeared a picture of the devil. <laughs> a very impatient devil uh, whose job was to come a little bit later on to advertise a new Columbia recording of Faust. Besides, as we all know and were reminded again last summer, there are no devils at national political conventions anyway, are there? Then in more recent times, an incident that happened to my colleague and your former resident, by the way, and graduate of West High, Harry Reasoner. Now this was during Harry's first tour of duty at CBS, and he was pinch hitting for Walter Cronkite one night on the evening news when unbeknownst to Harry, there came a very worried, frightened, beseeching telephone call from somebody in the commercial scheduling department who said to the director of Harry's News, whatever you do, don't let Harry Reasoner lead into that next commercial coming up in about two minutes. I am down on my knees in an attitude of prayer. Please don't let him stop. Get him some more copy. Wave him off. Well, they did uh, manage to wave Harry off from the commercial, got him some more news copy to read to fill up the one minute. Had that commercial come on the air, had he stopped for it, on the screen would have come the face of a very worried-looking lady tisk-tisking and shaking her head, and she would have said, Harry needs a laxative. <laughs> well, Harry left CBS not long after that, Though not because of it, he's back with us now, of course, has been for some time after a stint at ABC where before it was all over, he worked in tandem with Barbara Walters, and now that he's back at CBS doing 60 Minutes, uh, I think I can report without fear of contradiction that sweet old Harry Reasoner has found relief at last. <laughs> in the late 1930s and early 40s, when I broke into broadcasting, newspapers were still our number one means of popular communications, but not anymore. Now the number of TV sets in our homes is nearly twice the total daily circulation of all our major newspapers. Now for the preponderance of Americans, unless they see it on TV or hear it on the radio, well, it simply has not happened. Which is not to diminish the importance of newspapers, believe me, in any way. We need all the newspapers and news magazines we can publish to keep us truly abreast of the world's swift and complex developments. Television and radio, by their nature, simply cannot do the job. They can provide the quick impression, not the permanent one. They can suggest complexity. They cannot always explain it. They can impart wisdom. They cannot be a handy repository of it, not yet, anyway. Still, as even the most dedicated partisan of print must admit, we live in an electronic age we cannot go backward to the pre-electronic age. Print will never again reign supreme, and the electronic revolution is making vast changes in how we gain information, in how we perceive the world, in how we communicate. What may have been the most candid admission of the entire political campaign, now mercifully ended, came from Walter Mondale on the day after the election. He said, and I quote, 
Modern politics requires television. I've never really warmed up to television, and in fairness to television, it's never really warmed up to me. And then he added this very relevant note. I don't believe it's possible anymore to run for president without the capacity to build confidence and communications every night. It's got to be done that way. What he meant, of course, was the ability to manage the medium for our evening newscasts, as President Reagan has done. It's hard to believe that the lesson of television's impact on politics still must be learned more than 35 years after TV was first introduced as public force. But there you have it, Mondale's own words, the medium may not be the message, but it sure as sin is a message carrier. Mr. Reagan proved that beyond a doubt. Can you recall one single television shot of him outside of the presidential debates in which he was anything but resolutely upbeat? Contrast that with the often furrowed brow of Walter Mondale, and you recognize what Mr. Reagan and his advisors accomplished in their mastery of television and what Mr. Mondale and his advisors failed to accomplish. In a sense, the history of television, of broadcasting in general, in fact, is like a history of this country. America has grown up, lost some of its innocence, become influential and powerful, become an affecting part of the lives of people throughout the world. Equally, our power has led to problems, to what some regard as the American nightmare, as opposed to the American dream, to economic hard times for many people, for many farmers, for instance, for steel and auto workers, to 15% of our population below the official poverty line, to the steady growth of a hardcore group of poverty-stricken and jobless, to a monstrous federal deficit which threatens our very economic backbone, to rampant drug use and crime, about one out of every three American households is touched by crime each year. An astonishing statistic. Even our prized political system falters. We hope to do so much better in voter turnout last week, but we didn't, I'm sorry to report. There was only a slight increase, something like three-tenths of one percent, over 1980. Admittedly, it was the first increase in more than 20 years, but still not really significant, running less than 53% of the voting age population in this country. We are still a nation in which, as someone has said, the ideal of majority rule has been turned into the fact of minority rule. In the early 1950s, before television coverage was widespread, there was an election campaign down in the state of Florida that has become somewhat of a legend. Some of the stories that have grown up around it are now in dispute, including the one I'm about to tell you. But I'm going to tell it anyway because it indicates just how fierce the campaign was and because it suits my purpose. So here goes. The campaign was for U.S. Senate, and it involved two candidates, George Smathers, and Claude Pepper, and the two of them were carrying on like cat and dog, attacking each other every which way. It was a fierce campaign. Smathers pushed his campaign hard among the rural backwoods ropes, folks in some parts of Florida, and at one place where the audience seemed to him really behind the times, he let out all the stops. Among other things, Smathers said that Claude Pepper was known around Washington as a shameless extrovert. 
that he practiced nepotism, nepotism, with his sister-in-law. <laughs> that his own sister was once a thespian, a thespian, my friends, in, in wicked New York City. And worst of all, Claude Pepper himself, before his marriage, before his marriage, I underline, practiced celibacy. Well, not too surprisingly, Claude Pepper lost that election. <laughs> History's first victim of guilt by assonance, as someone has said, but I figure he'd lose it again today. You simply cannot practice celibacy and be a winner, not in 1984. <laughs> the point, however, is that Pepper came back. Claude Pepper did. He's now the oldest member of the House of Representatives, to which he won re-election again just last week. And he's an untiring champion of the elderly, as you probably know. Pepper is proof, certainly, that age is not a matter of numbers and that assonance may give you a little bit of trouble, but it is not fatal. With Claude Pepper in mind, it's relatively easy to put aside criticism of this country, so easily come by anyway, and to look instead at the positive side, at the positive side, at what is right about America, and to be sanguine about our future. Pepper shares the view expressed by Judge John Sirica, who presided over the Watergate trials, the view that we can face the challenges ahead of us because we believe in ourselves, and that is our greatest strength of all. You know, during America's first century, our forefathers did a whole lot of things. I'm going to tick off just a few of them by way of remembrance. During that first century, they won independence from England, pushed across the vast expanse of the North American continent to the Pacific, built our great cities, opened the gates to immigrants from all parts of the old world, freed the slaves, laced the continent with railroads and telegraph wires. During our second century, we became the greatest industrial and agricultural power on earth. We were the bulwark of democracy in two world wars. We developed the wonder drugs and invented television and the atomic bomb. We gave the United Nations a home and rescued Europe from the rubble of World War II. We developed the computer, the passenger jet, the communication satellite, even the Super Bowl and Pac-Man. We also sent the first man to walk on the moon, and we dispatched the first deep space probe. Now, in our third century, one simply marvels at the thought of what may be coming our way, at what is already here. The home computer, for instance, with its ability to simplify household duties. The so-called electronic university that will enable students to take college courses via computer without ever having to set foot on a campus. Improved communications of all kinds that will knit together more closely this tiny planet and perhaps enhance the hope of world peace. Breakthroughs in medicine, cures for more forms of cancer, for heart disease, other ailments, new sight for the blind, new hearing for the deaf, new medicines to remedy memory failure and other age-related disorders, maybe even a cure for the common cold. In our third century, medicine and science will come up with more and more discoveries that will transform the way we live, that will improve our physical well-being, our quality of life. And think of what will go on in the wider sphere, in the exploration of outer space and the depths of the sea. Think of the new vistas that will open up to us, surpassing vistas, which always result from opening up new territory. 
What President Reagan stressed in his campaign was that this country's future is bright, that in a way we live in the best of all possible worlds. Walter Mondale, on the other hand, talked unsparingly of what may happen in a future that is mortgaged to a profligate present, a grimmer picture than Mr. Reagan offered. Well, you know who won. You know whose message was the more appealing. Now, I don't wish to get into partisan politics or to accept a caramelized version of what America is like today. I've already sketched out some of our trouble spots, and there are many, many more I could mention. Perhaps you could add a few yourselves. At the same time, however, and this is beyond partisan politics, we often lose sight of our present virtues. I think Mondale sometimes did that in the heat of the campaign and to the detriment of it. So for a few minutes this noontime, let me focus on what is right about America right now as a possible antidote to any post-election blues. Well, for openers are people, surely, the millions and millions of Americans who simply lead decent and responsible lives, who volunteer their time in our churches, in our hospitals, in our schools, who get out and vote, who don't commit crimes, who recognize that the social order demands good civic manners, who resist bigotry and injustice, people whose stories don't make good copy, who don't land on the evening television news, but who serve as sinew and fiber of this nation. Believe me, there are a lot of them. Let's look at the miracle of American agriculture, the fact that American farmers grow 50% more crops on 6% less land than their fathers did 40 years ago, that they produce three times what we consume, their success, ironically, the cause of their present plight as they fight foreclosures and heavy mortgages and low income. Nevertheless, the agricultural miracle remains. I think, too, of our economic and employment strength, which is the envy of Western Europe. In the last decade, while Western Europe lost some two million jobs, the United States created about 20 million, a phenomenon that went on under both Democratic and Republican administrations, so it was a phenomenon of this country, not of any particular political party. And since the recovery from the recession got underway in 1982, the gap has widened. Major European countries continue to lose jobs while payrolls grow in the United States, and not just in the dominant services industries either, but also in devastated manufacturing, in manufacturing where once there seemed little or no hope. Some five million Americans have found new work in non-agricultural jobs since the bottom of the recession. As an economist for Goldman Sachs puts it, our economy is the most dynamic in the world in its ability to absorb new workers, a curiously American result of hard work, invention, and exploration. Then there's the promise that this country still holds, the promise that makes our shores the most attractive in the world for the oppressed and the impoverished, and for the wise investor. During the last decade, more than four million immigrants and refugees landed within our borders, and perhaps twice that many illegal aliens, more new residents than any decade in our history. We now have the fifth largest concentration of Hispanics in the Western Hemisphere, for instance. What these new arrivals tell us, apart from the problems they present us, and let's not kid ourselves, the problems are of staggering proportions, 
Nevertheless, what they tell us is that refuge in the United States has become one of the most valuable commodities in the world today, as sought after as oil or gold, as precious as diamonds. And why not? For truly this is a better place in which to live, measured by health standards alone. The federal government says that Americans born in 1982 can expect to live longer than those born in any previous year to an average age of 74 and a half years. And that infant mortality has dropped to its lowest level in history, to one third of what it was as recently as 1950. Think of our unexcelled hospitals and doctors and nurses. The University of Minnesota Heart Hospital, right here in Minneapolis, for one. Think of our scientists and other learned men and women who year after year win all those Nobel Prizes. Think of the fact that for the second time in 15 years, both math and verbal scores on the college entrance exams went up instead of down last year, a year when more Americans received college degrees than ever before, when more American youngsters were taking foreign languages, including Latin, than ever before. Our educational system certainly must be doing something right. Think, too, of our progress in racial matters. Not too many years ago, the Kerner Commission predicted ominously that we were moving toward two societies, one black and one white, separate and unequal. Now, we haven't eliminated all the racial barriers by any means in the intervening decade or two. We're still, in many respects, a segregated and racist society. Consider what happened in Chicago in recent days where the black family was hounded out of its apartment by white bigots. But at the same time, consider this. In the past 10 years, we have elected 223 black mayors in this country, including the mayors of three of our four largest cities. We have elected 347 black state legislators and 21 black congressmen and women. Last year, there were more than 1,200 black women in elective offices in the United States, nearly double the comparable rate for white women. Yes, we have come a long way in our fight for racial equality, though we still have a long way to go. The New York Times put it well in an editorial when it said, for all the racial polarization still evident in America, integration lives, and with it lives the long-term hopes for achieving a single society. Now, we must not be tempted by this list of achievements to think we have brought to reality the much derided American dream that we can supply all the answers. We can't, of course. We can supply some of them, yes, all of them, no. In any event, some of our problems simply don't have answers, and even if they do, they may lead only to more problems. Take a look at the automobile. Now, there is a classic example of a great solution, a great solution that also has created a few new problems, pollution, congestion, excessive energy consumption, and because of imports, high unemployment. So we must learn to think of life in America not so much as a condition of being, as a fulfillment of some great dream, but as a process. In a sense, we're always living in an age of transition in this country, in an age of quest, and our problems are part of that quest. One of our problems, as Walter Mondale so poignantly put it last week, is in my field, the field of communications. Actually, we all share that field, you and I. 
In spite of the superiority of our means of communication, our advanced technology, all of us still have trouble making ourselves understood one to another. Some people say we communicate too much and say too little, or vice versa. Like the baby who did some wondrous things, the baby who cut his first tooth, took his first step, and said his first word all on the same day. Well, when Daddy came home from work, you can imagine just how pleased he was to hear all these things. Wasn't that wonderful, he said. Baby cutting his first tooth, taking his first step, and saying his first word all today? But actually, Mama had had a pretty rough time of it, and she wailed, oh, no, it wasn't. Of course, the father wanted to know why it wasn't such a great day after all. Well, cried she, after Baby took his first step, he fell down and hit his head, and then he said his first word. <laughs> or uh, the story of little Stevie. Stevie, age eight, who no how, no way wanted to be sent away to summer camp that summer, but he was sent anyway, and he was pretty bitter about it, and it took him about two or three weeks to uh, mellow down long enough to uh, communicate with the folks back home. So on the back of a postcard, he wrote, Dear Mom and Pop, I knew all along something awful was going to happen here. Well, last night it did. Love, Stevie, period. <laughs> Two examples of communicating that didn't quite make it, at least not in the way hoped for. The historian and librarian of Congress, Daniel Burston, whom it was my great pleasure to interview some time back, tells us that the word communicate can be traced back to Starkey's History of England in 1538. There the word is connected to the definition of God. Starkey says that God is he who communicated his goodness to all others. This in turn is related to communicant, a person who shares in the Eucharist or Holy Communion. So in origin, communicate suggests common or community and it means somehow to make common, to share. Now, if we, think of it that, if we think of it that way, we naturally will be more selective in what we say. We will share with one another what is significant, what is from the heart, what is honest, and what is ultimately loving. We will not share what is profane, dishonest, or uncaring. We will, in truth, communicate. Let me draw on Daniel Burston again. He reports how he once met the explorer Thor Heyerdahl. Heyerdahl, as you probably know, has made ocean crossings by primitive means to certify certain theories of his, and one of his voyages took him across the Atlantic in a frail boat built only of reeds. In talking to him, Burston said he expressed the fear the fear that Heyerdahl and his crew must have felt when they suddenly left the sight of land and got out into the open Atlantic, stretching endlessly from horizon to horizon. But Heyerdahl said, on the contrary, the great dangers, the dangers of shoals and rocks, existed along the shore, and there was a wonderful sense of relief, he said, when they got out, out there into the ocean, where there was openness openness all around. From that, let us remember that what we in America accomplish depends on our ability to get beyond immediate dangers and problems and out into the liberating openness of the future. 
It depends certainly on our ability to believe in ourselves, to keep in mind the promise this country holds, to enhance what is valuable from the past while welcoming what is new and worthwhile now and in the future, to bear in mind the words of a man who took the oath of citizenship in New York City last summer, a man who had spent 14 years in Soviet labor camps and later traveled around the world on a banana boat. I tell it to you in his own words. He said, I look at Japan, at Europe, Central America. I feel here, only here, you are free, physical and spiritual free, the United States. With that thought in mind, let me close as I began by quoting Adlai Stevenson, this time from a talk he gave at Harvard University nearly 30 years ago, but I think his words are as pertinent today as they were then. I think you'll agree with me. Stevenson said, we have a great and fortuitous advantage in this country, for if there is nothing else the Kremlin wants more than to rule the world, there is nothing the United States wants less than to rule the world. America's life story, Stevenson said, is the record of a marvelous growth of body, mind, and character. Now, at maturity, we shoulder the heaviest burden of greatness, for in the last analysis, the epic struggle for our civilization, for government by consent of the governed, will be determined by what Americans are capable of. Speaking for myself, and I'm sure for you, I feel strongly we are capable, yea, more than capable of shouldering that burden of greatness. We must remember that we live in a new country less than three centuries old, that we live in an age of quest. We must keep alive the exploring spirit that exemplifies this America about which, above and beyond partisan politics and in spite of everything, so very, very much is right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Edwards. Uh, we've heard it said so often, why don't the news media tell us some of the good news and not only the bad news? And uh, you've shared some good news with us and, and yet avoided uh, a Pollyannish approach. So we, we thank you for heartening words, among others. Before we continue, let me uh, give permission to those of you who must leave to do so. Let me remind our radio audience that you are hearing the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. That our guest speaker today has been, is Douglas Edwards of CBS fame, a veteran of the radio and TV media. His topic today, which he's just finished addressing, a veteran correspondent looks at America, fall 1984. While we're sending our cards, our questions to the aisles, let me remind that the next forum will be December 6th, Thursday noon, as is our practice, 
Lawrence Graham, a young, young black, will be speaking. Lawrence Graham, how to be a winner in education. I am Donald Meisel, minister here and moderator of the forum. While some of these questions are coming together, uh, may I invite you, Mr. Edwards, to return to the podium, and perhaps I'll put one to you myself, uh, one of reminiscence and yet, I think, of importance. I realize that you were a colleague of Edward R. Murrow's, a very vivid man in my memory, and I'd love it, and I know others would, if you'd be willing to say something about that uh, special man. Indeed, Dr. Meisel, he was a special man, certainly. He was a sort of a father confessor, believe it or not. He, uh, despite his stern, stentorian manner on the air most times because of the serious messages that he was trying to get over to this country during, during and after World War II, he was a, a fun-loving man, a man who loved to sing. I'll tell you one particular story about him I think that epitomized him. I heard it only recently myself on a D-Day broadcast we did with Eric Severide, Charles Collingwood, and uh, Charles Shaw, and Bill Shadell, all correspondents who took part in the D-Day crossing. Uh, Collingwood related the story of uh, having played with uh, Edward R. Murrow some poker the night before. And Murrow was not supposed to have been a very good poker player, but on this occasion he won, and won rather handily and heartily. The next day, this follows the war, they had a very solemn journey to make to Buchenwald. And uh, so they did, and they entered this place, uh, this terrible concentration camp. And up to Murrow, uh, before this uh, particular thing happened, he would give out some of his winnings from the night before, from, from the poker game. When one man came up to him, himself uh, a long veteran of having spent two or three years in this concentration camp, a man whom Murrow recognized as the former mayor of Vienna. He had met him during the onslaughts there in 1938. Murrow embraced him, reached into his pocket, and pulled out all the rest of his poker earnings from the night before and gave it to this former mayor. And relating the story to Collingwood some years later in New York City, the former mayor of Vienna said, that helped me get my start again. That put me back on my feet, what Edward R. Murrow did for me that day. And uh, he was always doing things of that nature. He was a, a great newsman, a great inspiration to all of us then, and he still is. But I thought you'd like to hear that little story That's in particular. It's a fascinating story. Uh, perhaps this question fits in. Is it right or wrong for a newscaster to attempt to shape opinion? No, I think it's wrong if that's your main idea, to shape opinion. I think you're, you're, as a newscaster, a news reporter, your idea should be to give the people uh, who do you the honor to, turn, to tune in the news of the day, give it as fairly, as straightforwardly as you possibly can, and as much truth as you possibly can, with, with as much balance as you possibly can, can bring to the individual story. And then let the people make up their own minds. There is another area, however, that I think is very valuable. We find it, and this is what makes our daily newspapers so very, very important to us. Radio and television have stepped aside, I think, a great deal to, in the matter of uh, putting in focus some of the great events of our day. We're constantly bombarding people on radio and television with facts and giving too many 
qualified, uh, too few qualified people the chance to sit in the cool of the day and reflect on the heat of the day and do analysis and commentary and indeed some editorial uh, comment uh, so long as it is away from the body of straight news reporting and is clearly labeled analysis commentary or that's or editorializing. No, the, the reporting of the events of the day may shape events, but that should not be the, the number one thing that they go out for. Question from the group. The Granada invasion was not covered by the press, and looking back on it, what are your fears and your feelings? Well, I will uh, quote Eric Severide in a recent conversation I had with him. Uh, Eric pointed out that during World War II, we were all under censorship, and we got along pretty well. Nobody was hurt, really, because of the censorship. The story pretty much was told. Everybody knew why we had military censorship. But we were there. We were there in the hundreds. And he lamented the fact that in the Grenada story, not one reporter really went along. At least, the, the very least, the Pentagon could have allowed would have been one or two pool reporters to share the story with the, the rest of their brethren and thus with the rest of the country. I think it's rather bad that uh, that did not happen. I can certainly understand the, the, the picture of a small island about to be invaded by 10,000 young Americans or 5,000 or whatever it was, that maybe they didn't really want anybody to get hurt, but I think the country would have been much better served had a reporter or two gone along in the first wave and the others not kept waiting for a month or two or, or several weeks before they got in. Another question from the audience. Do you think the voter turnout might have been greater if TV hadn't declared the winner from 6 o'clock on, thus discouraging late voters and Westerners? That's, uh, that's an interesting question, and I answer it uh, thusly. Uh, I think an estimate has been made that perhaps the early call at, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time probably deterred or persuaded 3% of the, the voters on the West Coast to stay home and not go uh, out and cast their vote. That, I doubt if the number really was that high. I'm assuming that voters are just that, who realize that although their number one thing may be to vote for a president, presidential candidate, they also have a duty to vote for state legislatures, uh, the dog catchers, uh, for the members of Congress and many other uh, propositions that may be on the ballot. And I think your good voter will go ahead uh, no matter what he may have heard. What I'm saying is we cannot put the news under a barrel when we have it. It's a little silly to do that. I would suggest, and it's been suggested before, that the solution to this whole business would be for us to have a 24-hour voting period, or at least open and close the polls from east to west at the same hour, uh, in other words, at the exact same moment, and then close the polls. Then we get away from this, uh, this worry about whether it's keeping people from the polls. I think uh, the exit polls serve another purpose, which in addition to finding out how people voted, it, it also finds out, discovers why they voted that way, what their general background is, uh, where they came from, and something about them 
which I believe enables us to do a little better job on generally reporting on who voted for whom and why. You referred to this in your talk, but how do you feel about the need for a successful candidate for major office to have a pleasing TV personality? I remember reading an editorial where it listed the great presidents and the not so great, and all the greats would have been poor on TV. And Abe Lincoln might have had a little problem there. <laughs> right. uh, I suppose it's a given, it's a fact that if uh, you, one is attractive or persuasive or communicative, on television. Uh, he stands a better chance maybe of getting his story over. I would hate to think that this, this medium, which is so wonderful for, for selling things, for entertaining, and also for informing, uh, might do us wrong so far as our choice of a candidate is concerned. Would you please comment on violence on TV, its effect on children, and should it be censored or controlled? Well, this may sound like heresy, but I think we do have too much violence on, on television. I just, uh, I remember as a kid loving to go to the movies, and I loved uh, cowboy and Indian and shoot 'em ups and westerns uh, as a youngster in Oklahoma and New Mexico growing up and later in Alabama. But uh, I think we really are pouring too much violence, too, more, too much of the black side of human nature. Uh, out over the airwaves. Uh, there's utterly no question about that. Of course, our problem is that sometimes the, uh, the bad news, the black stark headlines, uh, the blood and thunder and guts and that sort of thing, that is what the American people seem to want because those ratings, when, where there's violence, the ratings seem to go up. An explanation of why we so often put the, 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 the sordid and the dark side of the news on the air is that uh, Americans are expecting to hear that kind of thing, and, they, and this is a sad commentary, but I think may be true. The good things are considered normal in our country, and therefore they're not news. That's too bad. I like to talk about the good things whenever I can. I will risk losing a little audience now and again to do it. What news story stands out most prominently in your mind? Well, of course, the World War II was uh, a big and terribly important news story. Vietnam, certainly. It brought the, uh, brought the terror of war into the living rooms of America for the first time, the Korean War before that. But one I like to think of, certainly on the good news side of the, the ledger, was uh, to visit uh, the state over to the east of here at the time of the announcement of the Salk vaccine for, for uh, the anti-polio vaccine. I took uh, our family doctor from Connecticut along, along with a camera crew, and Don Hewitt, my peripatetic director, and we tried to picture what the discovery of the Salk vaccine would mean to a great many Americans who no longer would face the worry and the terror and the hardship and indeed the illness of polio which came in the summer. And that was a good news story that I enjoyed telling. And uh, I hope to be around to, to, to tell a lot more like them. Uh, in my own background, the sinking of the Andrea Doria comes to mind. Uh, we got a little bit lucky, if I can use the word lucky in connection with a tragedy and happened to be over the ship with a camera crew in an airplane, of course, at the time the Doria sank, and 
got a clean beat on that for television, got it on the air a couple of hours later. Today it would have been put on instantaneously with the marvelous tools of communication we had. But there's so many stories. Every day is one of the nice things about my business is it's news is evergreen. It may be a little dull today, but you can sure bet your hat it will not be tomorrow. Could you tell us a little about your earliest days as a correspondent? Where were you first assigned by CBS, for instance? Well, I, uh, my first job at, at CBS, I have to give you a little background on this. I had worked on WSB Atlanta as an announcer in 1935, and I enjoyed news, wanted to, to go into news as a field for my own endeavor. Uh, took some journalism courses at night and also in the daytime at Emory University and after about a year I got a break. I was uh, promoted to the Atlanta Journal radio news staff. In those days the Atlanta Journal people read all of the news on the radio but we announcers from time to time were called on to uh, sub for them. So I got a built-in education from the radio editor of the paper, did some work on the radio page, went out with reporters on stories, and did three news broadcasts a day. So um, I was preparing for what later came along. Uh, I had two years at a station called WXYZ in the Michigan Radio Network over in Detroit. Some of you remember the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet and the Challenge of the Yukon. Well, they all came from WXYZ, and parenthetically, while there, I worked uh, on the news staff with uh, another young man, fresh out of the University of Michigan, still wet behind the ears, whose name then was Myron Wallace, who turned into Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes. Which is a long way around of telling you that I tried to get prepared with about six or eight years of uh, background in news before I knocked on the CBS door. I did that, uh, my anniversary is coming up on December 1st, it'll be 42 years ago, I'll begin my 43rd year with CBS at that point. In 1942, and uh, was hired to do a program then on the air called The World Today, it was on 6.45 to 7 p.m., it was an overseas pickup program during World War II, and it's on the air now, and guess who's doing it? The name of the program is The World Tonight, somebody in his great wisdom decided that today didn't quite cut the mustard, better make it tonight. So it's The World Tonight, and that was my first assignment and one that I still have and cherish at, at CBS. After a couple of years on The World Tonight and Report to the Nation on Sunday, in fact working seven days a week and loving it, and incidentally being paid by my lights very well for it. Uh, I was sent to Europe in the closing months of World War II to work for six weeks uh, with uh, Ed Murrow and his fine staff in London, uh, thence to the, to the various fronts to relieve the broadcasters and correspondents on the various fronts. But unfortunately for me, fortunately for the world, the, um, and perhaps fortunately for me too, come to think of it, uh, the war began to wind down and the Rhine crossing came along and we found the silos from whence came the, the German V2s and the areas where they sent out the buzz bombs which were terrorizing a good part of southern England. So I didn't get to go to each of the fronts. 
and Murrow reminded me that there was nothing intellectual about being shot at anyway. I then got to stay over, I spent four months in London, another ten months based in Paris, got to travel a great deal. I was in the Middle East at the time that the fledgling United Nations won its first victory and persuaded the Russians to move back from the Azerbaijan area of Iran, and did some broadcasting from that area and from Cairo, and it was because of that that I was invited to appear on an experimental television news show, only one a week in those days, that CBS put on to its one, on its one station in New York. And they sort of liked the way I answered the questions and asked me, would I like to do some more television? And pretty soon after that, I was not only doing that once a week evening show, but another one on, it was Thursday night, another one on Saturday. Now, I know that's a long, long answer, but that's what brought me into television uh, in the first place. A big one. Please comment on the current state of religious affairs in America. How big an issue was religion and politics in this past campaign? I think I better turn this over to you, <laughs> Dr. Mosel. I think that religion was perhaps more of an issue in this campaign than it really should have been. Religion is something that is very, very private. It's very private, and yet it permeates all of us. It permeates our lives. It is a part of us. And I wish they'd just stop trying to legislate those things. And uh, I, I think when the final analysis came in, everybody sort of voted their persuasion anyway, and probably with certain exceptions, of course, uh, certain exceptions, of course, underlined, voted the way they intended to in the first place. There was a religious issue, of course, when John F. Kennedy came along. He was the first American Catholic president. I remember one cool morning on a flight from Chicago down to South Bend, Indiana, when a sort of ruffled and tousled young man got on after I did. I was seated up front, and there was a seat next to me, and he went on back and uh, lay down for a while, did he for a little nap, and then came up and sat beside me. That he was uh, Robert Kennedy, who was his brother's uh, top campaign manager, as you probably remember. And uh, he wanted to know, from my standpoint, would religion be an issue? And I said, I think the fact, the matter that uh, John F. Kennedy is a Catholic may be an issue with some people, but we both agreed that we, would, we hoped it would not be an issue, but it was to some extent, but not all that much. Uh, this is not to diminish, to add any diminution to the role of religion in our lives, as you all very well know. I consider it extremely important and at the same time extremely personal. Another question. In other words, uh, after a kind of a preliminary comment, under what conditions would you suppress, withhold, or delay a news story? That's a, that's a good question. You know that. Um, if it would hurt the national security, and I knew it, certainly, I would suppress it, withhold it. I would not dare put it on. If it would hurt a family who had not yet been informed of the death of their son or daughter, I would try not to put that kind of story on. I remember one of my colleagues uh, committed suicide, and I went on the air in my earlier days and said that he had died that morning. Uh, 
Ed Murrow followed me an hour or so later on his news broadcast and told the story, actually, of the suicide. So I'm extremely, uh, I think, uh, not timid, but sensitive to other people as much as one can and, and be in the business of reporting news. But those are some of the parameters, I think, that I would observe. There's a great deal of talk about how apathetic America's young people are nowadays. Do you have any opinion about our next generation? No, I think they're fine, Dr. Meisel. I really do. I still worry a little bit about the Vietnam generation who had a terrible thing to worry with, and I think it affected a great many young lives. But of the younger people uh, coming along today, I'm not really worried. They somehow are doing an excellent job. I come into contact with many of them out on uh, speaking engagements here and there, and I see younger people being brought into our fold at CBS News. They're not only bright, they're, they're very good competitors, and I think they're excellent. And uh, I think that is another good thing about this country of ours, is our youth, which is our future. Before we sign off, and thank you, sir, let me just remind our radio audience that they have been hearing the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, and that happily our speaker today has been Douglas Edwards, veteran CBS correspondent, speaking to uh, America Fall 84. Let me remind you also, both those of you in the audience and uh, out on the uh, radio waves, that this program will be rebroadcast at noon this Saturday uh, on public radio, AM and FM. You said earlier, sir, that uh, Mr. Mondale commented that uh, he never warmed to TV and that uh, TV never warmed to him, but let me say for all of us that we have warmed to you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mondale. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.